Well, I've preached this passage hundreds of times. I've lost count. Just not as the direct text, but almost every week for years, I will reference something that's built from this passage as we lead into sharing communion together, as is our regular practice every Sunday that we gather. And it's certainly, it's, it's fine to take a Sunday and, and not partake for any number of reasons. It becomes habitual or, or too, too much of just a thing to do instead of something powerful that it is meant to be. And yet many, I know, have also said, I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to come and to partake in the elements every Sunday. It wasn't my tradition growing up. Perhaps it was a, a once-a-month thing or even a couple times a year thing. Uh, we've leaned into that rhythm and the words of Jesus, do this in remembrance. And we feel like we need to be people of remembrance all the time. So I've referenced this passage, but I haven't directly preached from Mark 14 in quite a while. And if I preached it hundreds of times, you might be saying, so what more is there to say? But then you would um, be mistaken. There's always more to say, believe it or not. Uh, the theological implications and imagery are very interesting and important, but let us not miss the most incredible thing about this passage. That's what I want us to hear today, and certainly so much more could be said than what I'll say in these few moments. But the most incredible thing, I believe, is that all are invited to Jesus' table. All are invited. These disciples are meant to represent all who would follow Jesus. That's the way Mark presents them, is that all of us who are, 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 are coming to believe in Jesus, let's put it that way, are coming to follow Jesus, see ourselves in the disciples, should see ourselves in them. They are representative. And, and what, what this represents for us in this first communion, this first and powerful expression of the new covenant shows us that all truly are welcome to the table of Jesus. To eat together is to declare that we are together. Family eats together. Friends eat together. Enemies and adversaries don't break bread together. So they certainly don't share from the same cup. And yet we see Jesus breaking bread and sharing with his disciples, being one with them, inviting them to be one with him now, I want to set the scene. In this upper room, at this table, there were no chairs. I almost, since we can do this now, removed all of the chairs out of this room so you would walk in and just had some cushions and some pillows. So, you're welcome. <laughs> I ran out of time and energy to pull that one off. But may we come with the same heart posture of what that would have been like to enter in and sit on the floor at cushions around a low table set with the elements. To do so, you might say, well, that would have been pretty uncomfortable. I'm not sure I can get down off on the floor and up off of the floor for some of us. It was a very relaxed position. Their feet would be behind them because feet often got dirty and stinky. Jesus washed them at this occasion, not told here, but in the parallel account in John. And they would somewhat, to sit that way would mean you would recline to a degree up to the table, maybe on an elbow, maybe on some form of cushion. That puts you into an interesting position at the table. First, everyone's on the same level. Everyone is humbled, so to speak. They're lowered. 
It's a relaxed position. It's a vulnerable position to be in, in that state. Now, that was customary for them, so it wasn't unusual to them. It would have been very unusual for us. Imagine if we walk out to our, our potluck today and there's no tables, but, or, or, very, or low tables right on the floor, no legs folded out, just the hard surface laid on the ground that we had to sit around. It would be very different for us. You would probably feel uncomfortable and have a tendency to just simply leave or to stand and eat. Imagine what it would be like for us to come with this heart posture, since we're not taking this physical posture today. The heart posture at the tables, the two tables we celebrate today, the table of Jesus and then the table of community and fellowship. Will we come on the same level? Will we come with a humble heart? Are we willing to be vulnerable or more vulnerable than maybe we're comfortable with, with one another. It's an intimate position that Jesus was with, with his disciples. As they broke bread, as they shared a meal together, as they ate together. God, give us those kinds of hearts as we gather in these ways today. In ancient times, meals were really f- far more of an event and more important than we tend to make them today, except on very special occasions Often the evening meal was the only true meal of the day in that community. Hopefully they had some some bread or some form of energy sustenance uh, in the morning and maybe at midday, but often not. And so the evening meal was the event, and it was often extended. It was a, a cherished time. Sometimes even it felt like a sacred time every night as the family came together, shared of their day, shared in community. Certainly in the in the Hebrew culture, this would have been true. In the broader culture at the time, a family would often spend 80% of their resources on food for the family. It was just incredibly costly to get good food, for, especially for larger families. So it was not taken for granted. None of it was. And I was just thinking of some of the terms that we use for food today, and it quickly could come up with a list of things. We call them fast food, dine and dash, eat and run, grab and go. We have a bunch of phrases for quickly moving our way through meals. And food is just almost a, a, a side, uh, an aside to the rest of our day. Right? We have power breakfasts, working lunches, TV dinners. Maybe it would be good to come to the table and slow down, to enjoy, to pause, to cherish, to look at one another, to share with one another. Not just a meal, but in conversation, in relationship. And we can do that today, to encourage one another, to point toward reasons for hope. And as I hinted at, and I'll remind you again, we'll pause here, and you as a family, or as individuals, or as a couple, or maybe with someone else who's here uh, by by themselves, but can come together to share a blessing, uh, something you're grateful for. That's what Jesus does here. To share something you need from Jesus, a help, or a confession, something you're asking Jesus to do, and a hope. What is a hope that you you have or maybe a longing for something to be made right? That's what we'll share today. It will only take a couple minutes to do so, so I'm priming it again for you to be thinking of those things to share with one another in this first table that we gather. Throughout Mark's letter, we've seen Food and meals for Jesus play a prominent part in his ministry. They're not often overemphasized, but they continue to show up. Him eating with sometimes the most unexpected people. That becomes a recurring theme throughout the Gospels. Way back in Mark chapter 2, 
verse 16. The teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with the sinners, the tax collectors, these despised ones, these unclean ones. And they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? They were astonished and perhaps even a bit indignant that he would do so. Jesus broke social norms. He broke religious systems. He broke down walls by breaking bread together. Social, political, class, religious, ethnic walls. They came crashing down for Jesus as he welcomed all to his table and even pursued them to eat together. All are invited. And I think nowhere is it more evident than here in Mark 14, as these 12 disciples represent all who would come to follow Jesus. Therefore, all of us, we see ourselves gathered with Jesus that night. When it was evening, he came with the 12, and when they'd taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Way to dampen the mood, Jesus. Now, Jesus knew what was going to happen, right? He's been speaking this way prophetically, foretelling what, what is to come. Right? He just told them exactly how they would find this room for the Passover. Go into the village. Find a man. It will be prepared. He'll be carrying a water jug. It'll be just like this. Mark uses very similar language back to chapter 11, if you remember, as Jesus came into the city or was coming into the city of Jerusalem for the first time. Listen to Mark 11, verse 2, and remember Mark 14, or have both open if you can do that in your Bibles. Go to the village ahead of you. This is Mark 11. Just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ridden. Untie it, bring it to me. If anyone asks, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it and we'll send it back. Mark uses, and I could, I could dissect this word, I won't do it, but very, very similar Greek language and words to connect these two passages. He's foretelling what is to come. And it comes to pass exactly as he says. So then when he says, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples have just experienced him telling something very specific that came to pass, and now he's saying it again. They can't dismiss it. They are distressed by it, and they're trying to deny it, but they can't dismiss that Jesus' words prophetically here have power. Now, we've seen them be painstakingly slow in coming to believe him when he's talking prophetically, especially about his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. They seem to never even get that far in their hearing. They're just like, no, Jesus, this is not going to happen. This is not how the move, a movement happens. This is not the way of the kingdom, not the Messiah, not the king. No, never. Maybe they are just now starting to think, Jesus is right. Jesus knows what we don't know. That doesn't mean they like it, but they're seeming to come to finally grasp. Now, a second, second reason that Mark might connect these two in this same language to make us think, well, he came into Jerusalem. It happened just as he said. He rode the, rode the colt in, and then he went to the temple, and he cursed the temple. He ended the temple. The next day, he flipped the tables. He, he cut off the religious system. Here he is. Everything happens just as he said it was. He comes to a table, and he says to them, this is my body, and this is my blood, Take and eat. This is a new covenant. So he's ending something old, and now he's establishing something new in himself. He is the new temple. This is a regular theme throughout the Gospels. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is God's presence with his people. No longer found at just the temple, but anywhere 
that people came together in communion in the name of Jesus and welcome his presence, he is with them. He is with us in the same way. These are his promises to us through his spirit. I think Mark is connecting the two events in a similar way to make us ask those kinds of questions. So the disciples have to take his word seriously. They don't have to like it. They're distressed by it. And they begin to deny, verse 19, surely not I, each one, surely not I, Lord. And he says again, yes, one of the 12. Now, that would have been interesting to say if the 12 were in the room. So I'm curious if there were more involved here. We never see that. It wasn't in the painting. Uh, but possibly more are gathered here in a greater room, potentially. Um, but these 12, maybe he's just calling out, hey, you 12 that should, should have it to, kind of together by now in your, in your faith, uh, um, we're not together yet. But the one who dips his bread in the bowl, this one, the one who takes his hand where mine is, the one who receives from me in this intimate, vulnerable way, even one of, one of you, is going to betray me. Now, Jesus is, shows that he knows exactly what is going to happen. Mark tells us, tells us so. Jesus, or Jesus, Judas would be the one to betray him. Peter would deny him that very night, though Peter denies it emphatically. We know what's coming. I think we do. If you don't read ahead, you'll see. But even before that, in the garden, Peter, James, and John fall asleep on him three times. They, they, they deny him with their... Their, their energy, their inattentiveness to his request, stay alert, pray with me tonight. They fall asleep, they fall asleep, emblematic of, of us. We've seen that. We'll see it again as we move forward in the passage. Essentially, every one of them will, be a, will abandon him. The shepherd will be struck, the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from the, the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus knows all of this is about to take place, and yet... He's invited them to his table. He serves them. Again, according to John, he had washed their feet like the lowest of servants. Then he shares with them, emblematic, breaking the bread and sharing the same cup, giving of himself to them. Knowing that the disciples are all weak of faith, weak in heart, still with some incredible theological gaps in their understanding of the gospel. And yet he serves them. He welcomes them. He opens his table to them. And this is the kind of part of the, the message that I've preached week over week for years that inspires how we gather, that we have a heart to have an open table mentality for all who would desire to come. That all are not just welcome, but all are invited. And not all will come, but all are invited. That we, whenever possible, can break down those walls that we might not even see at times that would keep people from being able to draw near to community and ultimately to Christ, to his communion. Some practice a closed table mentality, maybe specifically around the communion elements themselves, a this-is-for-us meal, or this-is-for-our membership, or this is after you have gone through a process that we would know what you believe and what you think, that you would be like us. We, we tend to look at that and say that doesn't reflect the heart of Jesus in the first table. 
if these disciples are meant to, re- meant to represent any who would come to follow him, then how can we not have an open table, not treating it, treating it casually by any means, but an open table for anyone who would say, I don't understand all, but I'm being invited to community. I'm being invited to pursue Jesus, to be welcomed by him, regardless of who I am or who I'm not, what I've done or haven't done. We believe that's the grace of God poured out and that Jesus expresses that to his disciples. He knows they're not worthy. That's not what it's about. He knows they are willing, but he also knows that their worst moments are right around the corner. See, some of us will say, hey, we, good, we have, an open, we have an open table. Before we start patting ourselves on the back, we can often then put barriers in place that say we need to prove our worthiness. Come to the table, receive, just as you are. Come as you are, but then show that you've got your act together. I mean, then start living out got the gospel, living out faith. Come as you are, but change, and change evidently. How good is good? How enough is enough? Who gets to measure that? What does holiness truly look like? What does obedience truly look like? What does faithfulness truly look like? This is not the story that's presented for us in the Gospels. Jesus, knowing what is to come, the doubt, the fear, the betrayal, the denial, the distrust, the weakness of faith, the misunderstanding... All of this is to come for his disciples. He knows it's coming, and he serves them. He welcomes them. He doesn't say, listen, you don't understand anything today, but I know you're going to get it, and you're going to change the world, so you're welcome to my table. It's not dependent on any future thing. It's dependent on one thing, the incredible love and mercy of God. And that's why the table is open for us. Any kind of closed table, whether it's in this room or in that room, any kind of closed table says, yes for me, but not for thee, is antithetical to the heart of Christ. May we open the table without doing so flippantly to the depth and power that is in place in this communion meal. May we partake, receive, Celebrate grace and mercy and love. The table becomes the enduring symbol of the Christian faith. The bread and the wine is arguably the greater tangible symbol of the followers of Christ than the cross. This is not at all to diminish the power of the cross. You cannot have one without the other, according to Jesus. Jesus never said, hang a cross around your neck. Perhaps tattoo it upon your flesh to never forget. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Break bread. Take the cup. Remember my sacrifice. Remember my blood in this way with one another. Do this. This endures. 
I hope you can hear me clearly that, I, that the power of the cross and the reminder of that is vital. It's crucial. But the enduring emblem of the people of God, the family of God, is a meal. It's a table. It's bread and wine. And that is powerful. And it's beautiful. We recognize and we celebrate what Christ has done in this enduring place. This open, grace-filled table of Jesus should shape how we celebrate communion here and communion there. We want to be a people who eat together, who are one together. And I believe in the eyes of Jesus, what we do when we come together at potluck tables is as significant to him as the partaking of the bread and the cup in this moment. I believe he celebrates with us in both. Now remember, Jesus was celebrating the Passover. The Passover is described in the beginning of Exodus and that story of God's people coming out of slavery in Egypt. Most of us are probably at least in cursory familiar with that story. You can look at it in the first handful of chapters in Exodus. That final day when God was going to deliver, he instructed his people to eat a meal, to take a lamb, to roast it, to bake unleavened bread in quickness, in haste, and to partake in this meal, taking some of the blood of the lamb and putting it upon the door frames of their homes. This is Exodus 12, 7. Take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the sides and the top of the door frame of the house where you eat. And that house, marked by the blood, would be passed over that night as death came into the city. And God's people found life and freedom and deliverance instead. Now, this is what was happening in that moment with the disciples. But it wasn't likely until Jesus hung on the cross when more came together. Now, his language of take this cup, it is my blood of the new covenant. They knew he was speaking powerfully, connecting the blood of the Passover celebration to himself. They knew that. But until he hung on the cross with blood on his head and down his sides, the power in the imagery was not complete. He is the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. His body broken, his life given, his blood shed for us. And we celebrate that. Now, at that Passover meal over the centuries, it had become a feast. Bellies were full at the end of the night. And so if the only way we, ever, we celebrate communion, reflecting on Passover and what Christ has done as the Passover lamb, is a little tiny piece of cracker and a swig of sour juice, we've missed the feast idea. And so I love our first Sundays, and I love that they come together in this way. That could, that, those elements in the back will hardly fill our bellies. But the meal to come will, where there's seconds and there's thirds, just as at the first Passover. Their bellies were full when Jesus then took the bread and said, I'm doing something new here. And so, as we come together around tables of feasting, 
we rejoice, we give thanks for God's abundant provision, and it's just as much communion as we do so and reflect on what he has done and given to us in grace and mercy as is this meal that we come together reflecting on his saving grace for us. Because Jesus is about the fullness of life. Not segregated religion or spirituality over here and then the rest of our life, but all integrated. I have come to give you life and life to the full. And he calls himself the bread of life that sustains us, that fills us, that we will never hunger, that we will never thirst. He gives us all. So may we reflect in fullness today on the power of these images for us as we partake and celebrate in these two meals. Now, I often say, and have said with my kids, and have said with you, that meal is to be a foretaste of a coming feast as well. This communion meal that we celebrate with these elements of bread and juice are meant to help us remember all the way back to the Passover, all the way back to God's deliverance, his faithfulness, his rescue, his salvation. God has not changed. He continues to do so. To remember Jesus, do this in remembrance of what I have done for you, he says, never forgetting the, the sacrifice, the cost, his love for his followers. But it is also to declare what is to come. This is a foretaste of a coming feast. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in his discourse on the communion meal in Corinthians, in the, his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You eat presently with one another. You declare his death, past, until he comes again, future. This is a past, present, and future reality that we partake in in this table. The way that Jesus opens his table to these disciples is our conviction of how we open the table to all who would draw near, to all who are being drawn and beckoned in by Jesus. And if Jesus served Judas, if Jesus served Peter, looking into their eyes, giving the bread to them, inviting the cup to be taken, how could we close that table to anyone? Anyone who would come and desire to partake. Jesus opens it. So let's return again to this place. Let's remember. Let's reflect. And more necessary, let's repent. Let's turn from a mindset or a direction that we've been going to return to the ways of Jesus. Repentance is such a gift. Before I get there, Jesus kept the disciples in suspense for a few moments. He knew what Judas had already put in motion. That's how we read the passage. He had already gone to the religious leaders to betray them, to work out a deal. So things were already in motion. And Jesus knew it and said one of the 12, knowing it was Judas, but he leaves them in suspense for a few moments. Why does he do that and not just call out Judas? Why, why give them that angst? He's inviting them. He's inviting their whole self. He's inviting their heart. And if they represent us, he's inviting us. 
Because each one of them has to introspectively, we hope, maybe it was cursory, never, Lord, not me. And we can do so in arrogance as well. But the humble heart introspectively looks at this pause given by Jesus. Could that be me, Lord? Is it possible? I have no, no intention and no desire to do so. Only Judas would have been lying directly. But could the others have said in this invitation, I see that within me. Oh, God, help me. Lord, help. That would be a right response for us. I also believe that Jesus, in his grace and mercy, is inviting Judas to repent even in this moment. Yes, things have been put into motion. Yes, his heart has been hardened. But Judas, it's not too late. This does not have to be your story. Is that possible? Verse 21, for the Son of Man will go as it is written of him. It's going to happen. But woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. There will be betrayal. Does it have to be Judas? Even in this very moment, we know the story, so it's kind of a conundrum. Is it possible that Jesus is inviting Judas to repentance even here? He's hardened his heart. He's chosen money over Jesus. He's chosen to walk out on him. He will. But in this very moment, is it possible for repentance? For a change, for a softening, for a turn? I believe it is. And if that's, if that's true, then for in this moment, for any one of us here gathered or within the sound of my voice, then repentance, a turning, is possible. Doesn't matter what you have done or how long you have set your heart hardened against the ways of God, into your own paths, against the kingdom, no matter what you've set in motion, it is possible in this moment to turn. That's the gift of repentance. Repentance is a recognition of being lost. If you've ever been lost driving your car somewhere, a gift is, oh, there's a U-turn lane. <laughs> That's repentance. I'm aware that I'm going the wrong direction. I don't know where I am, but I need to get back. I need to turn. Oh, there's an easy way to turn around. What joy. Instead of on a highway that has no further exit for three miles. Have you ever been in that situation? Kind of out in the middle of nowhere and you miss the exit and you know it and you can't turn around for miles, not legally at least. An immediate exit or U-turn is a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's grace. Thank you, Lord. It's not condemnation. It's not shame. Every one of us has been in that place and probably is again today. Here's the ways that I've set my heart or even just the direction of my life off, a degree off, or completely the opposite direction of the ways and will of Jesus. And repentance is an opportunity and a gift for us today. Change course. Turn, receive. Jesus creates this space, and I believe he's creating it for all of his disciples there to introspectively say, 
Could that be me, Lord? Is that possible? Yes, I see that's possible. Lord, help me. Yes, I see where I need to turn and repent and come. May we come. All are invited. And I will say a word to the, to the children in our midst. It's why they're here. It's why we've welcomed our children to communion with us every Sunday. I know families have different practices and different traditions, and I, I want to honor those as well. But here, our conviction that children are welcome to this meal, to partaking, because this is what Jesus shows for us in his countenance toward children. Mark 10, 14, not related to this specific Passover meal, so hear me, hear the heart of Jesus. He says to his disciples, who are trying to stop the children from coming to Jesus, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, not when they grow up someday. No, to these, he doubles down. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Whoa. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. The same language that Mark uses for he took the bread, put his hands on it, and blessed it. I think there's a connection. We see the heart of God, and I believe we are open to invite all who would come. I think we should teach that it's not a snack, that there's something powerful happening in this meal. Now we can say, but they don't know enough. They need to come to what level of knowledge? The disciples don't know how to pray in this moment. They don't know John 3.16 hasn't been written or any other New Testament scripture. They don't know really about mercy, forgiveness. They don't truly know about service. Well, well the children, they don't believe. They, they need to believe in Jesus first. The disciples at this point don't believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. And they're invited to Jesus' table. And so we invite, because ultimately, we are all like little children in the faith. And if we don't see ourselves like that, we have not heard these words of Jesus at the heart. Unless you receive the kingdom like a little child, you will not enter it. So we come again humbly. We come again gratefully. We partake together you are welcome to not partake as well. If your heart is not there today, we do take it seriously. But come joyfully, not dependent on what's happening tomorrow, not flippantly with the prayer, God, help me. Lord, I want to live well for you. I want to honor you. I also know my track record. And today I receive grace. Today I give you my heart as I come. You've given yourself for me. May we partake like that together.